Yeah, we're going to look at hope for a culture in crisis, future glory, and we're going to be looking at Romans 8, as we are, for, as we are at these few weeks, um, really digging into this magnificent chapter of God's word. But it's, it is magnificent, but like most wonderful, magnificent things, it, it, it requires effort and some concentration and thought to get the best out of it. It's not like lots of just little sort of spin phrases or uh, sort of blessed thoughts. There's something quite profound in here. And so bear with me if it sounds a little chunky at times, but I believe God wants to speak to us very clearly out of this word this morning. So I'm going to read Romans 8 verses 18 to 27. You please follow it if you've got uh, on tablet or phone or on even have such a thing as a Bible in your hand like I have. Yes, I quite like that tactile feel. Anyway, right. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eat, wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, this passage is essentially picking up two contrasting themes. Suffering and glory. And these themes are tied to two ages, two times. One, the present time or the present age. And actually the original phrase in Greek literally translated would be the now time. And I actually prefer that, the now time. One refers to the now time and the other refers to the age to come. Now the now time we're living in right now is characterized by suffering. There is a lot of suffering in our world. There is a lot of suffering around us. There may be quite a lot of suffering in our own experience. And if I said to you that the present age is, has a characteristic of suffering, I think if you were realistic, if you watched the news, if you thought reflectively, you'd say, maybe that's right, that's true. And I think you need to know, because I want to say it clear out and clear, Christians are realists true realists. We understand the state the world is in. Indeed, I believe our worldview, our Christian worldview, and you'll see that I hope in the next few minutes, is a far more balanced and hopeful view than anything else. You see, we live, we literally here in this country particularly, live in the midst of a culture 
that has a very different worldview, and I think it's quite a bleak culture, if I'm honest, and despairing. I'll briefly explain. We are taught and educated to this, and our culture assumes this, what I'm about to say, that the world is a closed system, that there isn't really a God, you're not allowed to talk like that, that the whole thing is driven by blind evolution, chance-driven evolution, and it's moving from nothing to nothing. Now, if you really believe that, that's bleak. If you really believe that, all the suffering, all the pain, and it's pretty obviously there, can never really be explained in any way. And it certainly can't be transcended. What are we doing here? No wonder our culture's in a crisis. No wonder people do despair and even take their own lives. Because if this is all there is, what hope? What is the point? What is the point? dare I say it, of even preserving the planet if it's all just going to be burnt up when the sun explodes and it all comes to nothing and you're only here for a few years and then you come to nothing so I'm not sure why you worry too much about what the next 300 years are going to do. Now I know people have arguments against that but I think they don't think it all through. It's not, people often point the finger at Christians and say, ah, oh, what about suffering? I want to point the finger back at atheists and agnostics and say, well, what do you say about suffering? What's your answer to suffering? How will you give me a reason to live or to, or, or to try and improve things? What for? Do you really believe it's a closed system, blind, chance-driven evolution from end to end? That's what we're told, from nothing to nothing. The Christian worldview is different. We are realists. We understand this now time has a lot of suffering. But Christians view the sufferings of this life in a larger world-transcending context. We don't ignore the present reality of evil and suffering. But we look beyond it with a confident expectation that evil and suffering will not have the final word. That will not be the end of all things. This present age isn't all there is. And we have other things to offer even within this present age, which if we have time, we'll cover, I hope. The Christian knows that there is a God. There is one who began all things and will end all things. One who made it all and sustains it all by his power. We also know that there is a devil. We may not understand how it all works together, but we know there is a, a, a demonic influence in our world. We know that there is sadly, very obviously, a problem of human sin in the heart. That all of us, and I include ourselves, do not manage to do all the good things we want to do. We are often driven a lot by selfishness, pride, greed, lust, envy, and all those other things. And many of those things have terrible consequences if they are allowed to fruit, if they go beyond just being inside. They lead to all sorts of horrible things in our world. But Christians also believe there is a saviour, Jesus Christ, who came down to this world as a man who understood the pain and the loneliness and the difficulty and the suffering, understood the turmoil of it all, indeed absorbed it, he suffered for us in some mysterious way in order to redeem us and ultimately creation, he had to suffer. It is so embedded into a sin-sick world that suffering cannot even be avoided by God himself. But there is an age to come which will outshine everything that's gone before. And that will be characterised by glory, by the presence of God, by the glory of all his will being completely fulfilled. The whole world and the whole creation in harmony with his purposes. 
This whole creation, including us, is going somewhere. This isn't it. It's not finished. This is the now time. There's a not yet time coming. There's a future glory age coming. And as we look at these verses today and dig into them, we're going to see things that teach us how to understand what we're in, how to believe right. And I hope our faith is stirred, but I hope we stay understanding the realities of the now time, even though we look for the glory time. So we, there are three groanings in this chapter. I don't know if you noticed them when I read it. Three groanings. Creation is groaning. We Christians are groaning. And the Holy Spirit is groaning. That's, you'll pick it up in verse 22, 23, and 26. Now, I have only planned to do the first two points because there's too much to say. But I just wonder if somehow God's going to help me. Because the Holy Spirit bit is fascinating at the end, but it's a, something we'll tie in. Let's look, first of all, at creation groaning. These three groanings are important. Perhaps it's worth saying, let's remember what groaning means. I know people twist words and misuse them. If you look at a proper dictionary, and I looked at proper dictionary, groaning or groans are a deep rumbling sound conveying pain, distress or despair. Now hear that. Pain, distress and despair. It also added, interestingly, the sound made by an object under pressure. So you get that with a bridge groaning that's about to break. You get it with ice groaning that's splitting and falling. There's a thing under pressure and you can hear the groaning as if before it breaks. Creation is groaning. Everything around us is groaning. There's a creaking and a groaning. There's a pressure. There's a sense of distress and pain. When God created the world, it was good. He created man and woman in his own image to rule over it and steward it in harmony with his purposes. And actually, very literally, men and women were meant to be vice-regents, small g, gods of this world. They were meant to bring order, meant to bring the kingdom to the world. As best we can understand it, that was the purpose, to bring rule and, and harmony under God's rule, in harmony and, and, and partnership with the living God. But Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They chose to disobey him. This is a, a, true of them. It's true of us. This is what humanity has done. Decided particularly to choose their own good and evil. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll read that in early Genesis. But actually what that did was really only open up evil to them. They knew good. Everything was good. But it opened up evil and it sadly gave a foothold in this world to a demonic force. The fallen angel, Satan, Lucifer, son of the morning. And, and, and he didn't have any right authority, but we gave it to him. And our rebellion and sin didn't make us independent. It made us influenced by the, what, who became the God small g of this world. The prince of the power of the air. And that combination was pretty damaging and destructive. Human sin, human rebellion, an unwillingness to take God seriously, not submitting to God's ways, slowly but surely this infected the whole creation. Indeed, not slowly. At first, the very curse that, that a holy God put on the sinful man and woman had an impact on creation straight away. It wasn't creation's choice, wasn't creation's fault. When I talk about creation, I mean what we call nature. Everything's subhuman, if you like, animals and inanimate. 
anima, inanima. And, and there was a sense in which sin impacted the whole thing. Now, I could spend the whole morning on this because as Christians, we need to understand it. You can't relate everything that goes wrong to a particular sin or as a judgment or all these horrible things sometimes people say on a particular sin. But the whole thing is spoiled. The whole thing, there is a mixture of human sin, there's a mixture of rebellion, there's a mixture of the consequences, the consequences, the consequences, generational impact of it, there's a mixture of demonic influence, there's a whole mixture of mysterious things where God has uh, allowed the curse, as it were, to run on the whole of creation. And sinful generations of humankind, of which we're one, and their defiance of God and their influence by the evil and demonic has had a degraded, degrading, destructive effect on the world around us. What we see today, the devastations in our world, the natural resources spoilt, the extinction of species, the impact of man on the environment, whatever you like to say, isn't a modern problem. It's an outworking of millennia of rebellion coming to a certain unhealthy climax maybe, but actually it's a decline and decay that's been around for a long time. Now this is classic Christian theology. Let me give you, a well I love these old writers, this is Matthew Henry, a, uh, a Puritan writer, and his commentary on this verse, when man sinned, the ground was cursed for man's sake, and with it all the creatures. The creation was sullied and stained. Much of the beauty of the world was gone, and it is not the least part of their bondage that they are used, or abused rather, by men as instruments of sin. We have reason to pity the poor creatures that for our sin have become subject to vanity. Basically, Christians understand that this world is not ours, God allowed us use of it, but we have to steward it well, we're to look after things, we're not to abuse animals, we're not to exploit it. And that is fundamental to Christian theology for 2,000 years. And here it is reflected in someone writing 400 years ago about the state of things around us. But we need to quickly say, so what is the hope? What is the answer? What do we believe about the situation? Well, creation's hope, the natural world's hope, is actually bound up in our hope in Jesus Christ. That groaning is also a sense, as a sense of it being labour pains. That's what it says in those verses we've read. Labor, there's, a, there's a pain and a groaning, but there's also a sense in which it anticipates that there will be a day of something changing and something better coming forth in glory. And one of the things that creation is looking for, how, this is sort of metaphoric, but it's literal as well, how and um, how I can't explain in detail, but one of the things this groaning is anticipating is the redemption that Christ has won and the outworking of that redemption in our lives as children of God, born again by the Holy Spirit. And in a way, they're waiting, creation is waiting for that resolution, that consummation of ages, when, when Christ comes back and when those who are his are changed and when the whole thing can be changed to where it should be, with a new heavens and a new earth, where a new age of glory comes and creation itself will be transformed, freed from the devastating effect of sin and human rebellion and demonic interference. All things will be restored. That's the promise, a new heaven and a new earth. It's not totally obliterated it's changed now this is 
tie it up with what Jesus has done. Let me give you two verses which will go up on the screen. Colossians 1, 19, 20 and Ephesians 1, 10. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or in Ephesians, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. That's not yet, it's coming. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. When Jesus died, he did more than just forgive your sins and mine. He was bringing redemption. He was rolling back the consequences of the fall. He was bringing in the kingdom of God. And that process has started and it will not finish until it is completed with the renewal of all things at the return of Christ. And it's ongoing now. Now, I think as Christians, we live with this tension. We live in the now and we look forward to the not yet. And actually within that context, I'm sorry the tension's around, but that's how life is. There are, a, there's even a tension there and I'll explain it briefly. I think we all know, if we believe our Bibles, that this world won't actually be saved by human effort. Human effort and rules and plans and schemes, and I don't deride them, and I'll explain that later, to try and save the planet are on their own, in their own effort, never going to work. And they're never going to work, not because I'm a pessimist, but because I understand the human problem, the heart. Because people are all the same. We're all fundamentally selfish we've got problems we've got sin we've got lust we like things we want and we want them in our way and it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that you might well solve one little bit of your destruction of the world over here but over here human greed and pride and lust and envy will be ripping away even worse wars and other things I mean many things strike me as I travel the world and, and this is you know we've had years of cars and every electronic gadget we want but do you know there are more people in Asia, that is India, China, Philippines, than the whole of the rest of the world put together? And they're just getting in on the act. Since I've been going to India for 30, 40 years, everybody wants a car. They've all got a car. Have you ever been to Mumbai? You'll see pollution. You go to Delhi. It look, makes London look like a sea breeze. And then there's Beijing. And there's, now, I'm not, I'm saying, and that, why shouldn't they have a car? We've had one. You've had one for 50 years. I've had one. And so we've got a huge problem if it's just trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, if it's just down to men. And then there's all the other complexities of human behaviour. I actually believe God will one day change things. Let me give you a verse, 102, Psalm 102. In the beginning, this is to God, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them. That's what's going to happen. This world will wear out like an old garment. And God will change it. It will be like it were discarded and a new garment created. But you remain the same and your years will never end. God made the world. It belongs to him. And he will decide what to do. Humanity is wearing it out fast. And we can patch it up and we can help, but I suggest to you that without the gospel changing the hearts of multiple billions, it'd be hard to see how you would deal with the fundamental problem that we all have, which is what I want to move on to. So we, we actually see 
that, that, that probably it's going to have to be one day that God wraps it up and changes it. But what do we do right now? Well, I think Christians can do something about the state of the planet. I really believe the best thing you can do for the state of the planet is preach the gospel. Honestly, preach the gospel. Honestly, tell people about Jesus. Really tell them about Jesus. Because that's the only thing that will change the human heart, will change men and women's heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ, correctly and rightly proclaimed, brings faith, brings hope, brings change to individuals' hearts. And it begins to roll back some of those things. Now, I'm not saying that on the way you can't... I do. I recycle things. I endeavour to be wise in my use of my uh, car. I walk when I can. There's all sorts of sensible things we should do. But actually, if we're going to really make anything a bit better, it needs the gospel. It needs people with their heart changed so they understand what real stewardship is and begin to respect what God's given us and not see it just there for our use begin to see it as part of God's glory there are shades of his glory all around but it's pretty damaged but it's still there and we begin to thank God for it and we begin to look to to promote it if you like or to protect it here's a phrase it's not going to go on the screen here's a phrase from dear old Matthew Henry the bloke I've quoted already 400 years ago put in a very simple old-fashioned way a good Christian man should be merciful to his beast now, he's talking when everybody had a horse or a cow or, or sheep and dog. You know, a good, basically, if you get saved, you should be better looking after your animals. It should make a difference. You should be merciful to your beast. And being a Christian means you care about the world you're in and you care about animals and you care that things are properly treated and responsibly dealt with. But there's a tension because you're not expecting that to bring the whole solution <laughs> you're looking for the day when Jesus comes back let's quickly move on we may not have time for the third point let's quickly move on to Christians groaning because this is important as well creation's groaning Christians are groaning verse 23 not only so but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies we who are in Christ who have uh, the Holy Spirit in us and new creations, who now have understood what it is to be saved and know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, know Father, God as our Father in heaven, we also groan. Why? Why are we groaning? Because we do not yet have the full redemption that has been won for us. We are longing for a completion of salvation. If you're a real Christian and you're realistic, you're aware that things are not as they should be. That stuff isn't like you want it to be. You don't like seeing people suffer. You don't like suffering yourself. And, and there's a groaning. There's a, a, a pain in it. We're waiting for, to see Jesus. We want to see him. We want to meet him face to face. We want to have our new bodies. We want to be with him in glory. Our salvation has not yet come to completion. The, the word salvation has three, a past, present, future aspect. Yes, we're saved, completely saved when we put faith in Jesus, the moment we believe. But that is working out present. We are being saved. 
We're beginning to learn how to have victory over sin. Its guilt has been removed. We're learning how to resist the devil and he'll flee from us. How to not get wrapped up in a world's values and system and how to change by the renewing of our mind from one degree of glory to another. We are being saved day by day. It's rolling on. But we will be one day fully saved when we receive our new bodies and are with him and are like him as Jesus, as Jesus, like Jesus. So there's an ongoing to our salvation and we live with this tension and it is a tension. It's a real dilemma, the now time and the not yet time. And probably it helps us just to focus, and we will, just on the physical aspect of that tension. We've already been redeemed, we have renew spirits our hearts are changed but our bodies are not yet changed let's look at this one from Philippians 3 it's still to come but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body we haven't yet got our glorious body some of us think we have but you haven't you haven't. Uh, we've still got your lowly body. And that tension could cause us to groan. We're still opposed by the world. We're still persecuted. We're still in the active presence of demonic temptation, for example. But we also feel the weakness of our flesh. Look at these verses from, of our, our bodies and our flesh. Look at these verses from Paul, 2 Corinthians 5. Meanwhile, we groan, there we go again, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, he's talking about your body as a tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed. This is not, we're not suicidal. We don't want to kill ourselves. We're life affirming. But to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. We're looking forward. We're life affirming. The gospel is you can... There's much to enjoy now, but there's a lot more to come. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, actually, unless you're alive when Jesus comes back, we will all die, for example. Our bodies are physically decaying, just as creation is. And that causes a groaning. Here's a very incisive comment from John Stott, and I think we need to just look at it. Some Christians grin too much and groan too little. They seem to have no place in their theology for pain. That's quite an incisive comment. Some Christians grin too much and groan too little. And I know what he means. It's important to understand it. I think you can have a balanced approach to life. Let me give you a personal example. I have benefited over the years from faith preachers. I have genuinely found a lot of help in them. I found them provoking and encouraging in areas and uh, they're often dismissed as wealth and health people and very scornful, sometimes rather arrogantly dismissed and some of them are a bit weird but underneath there is a lot in there that provokes me about faith and belief for what God's doing and for seeing God to do more. In 2010, Marion and I went to Bethel in Redding, California, and we had a great week there. We enjoyed, the worship was outstanding. It was a wonderful sense of the presence of God. The, there was grace, there was care, there was a sense of, of faith, which we enjoyed, and we were prayed for, and 
lots of wonderful things happen. But both of those, and there are two examples, I could give you others, both of those streams tend, listen, tend, I don't say they all do because I respect them, tend to drift towards or even push towards what's called over-realised eschatology. There's a nice word for you. Over-realised eschatology. That is fundamentally, they have an unrealistic expectation of what you can have now as opposed to not yet. There is a danger, it's all in all sorts of Christian circles, that there is an unrealistic and I would say unbiblical level of expectation. We do not have everything now. We don't. We have, in Paul's words, the first fruits of the Spirit. Hold that phrase, the first fruits of the Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit is the first taste. That's another phrase used in Hebrews 6. He's a taste of a feast that we're not at yet. He's the first fruits. If you've got um, a big orchard or something and you've got a tree there with, with, uh, I'm going to need another five minutes. If you've got an orchard with a tree there, um, you, you, you might have one that's sheltered and in the sunshine and the apples are lovely and ripe earlier than the rest of the orchard so you get the first fruits you go, oh it's going to be a good harvest cool they're good but the rest are all green and sour so you can't actually have baskets full of apples and give everybody some you've just got a foretaste the first fruits and that's what the holy spirit brings to us he brings a deposit that's a phrase we've just seen in 2 corinthians 5 5 that's the first installment it guarantees the future completion of the purchase it's, it's the first instalment, the beginning of the harvest. The Holy Spirit, Spirit brings healings, deliverance from demonic oppression, victory over sin, changed hearts, miracles, provisions, joy, peace, hope. It's a taste of the feast to come. But the very presence of the first fruits deposit reminds you you're not there yet. Because when you're there, you don't need the deposit. You don't need healings and miracles in the age to come because you won't be sick. So the very fact you need healings and miracles is a big message that we're not there yet. We only can expect a taste of the age to come or the first fruits. We are still in the now time, which has a lot of suffering. But we taste of the glory time and get glory into the now time. But we can't turn the now time into the glory time. We can take tastes of glory which the Holy Spirit brings to us. And so we wait eagerly and we wait patiently, it says in this passage. We wait eagerly and we wait patiently for the age to come. We have a sure hope. Loads of verses, verse 30 and others in this chapter tell you there's no question of the salvation that's begun will be completed. But we're not there yet. Now, The eagerness and the patience can be two mistakes Christians make. You can be too eager. Like little children on a journey, if we're all parents, we know this, you've got a two-hour journey and after 20 minutes they say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? Oh, no, no. Settle down, read your book or whatever they do nowadays on the screens. You know, we've got over an hour to go yet. Now, Christians will be like, too eager. Oh, we're there. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And they try and grab now what you can't get now. Try to force God's hand over what he will give them now. They talk as if, the re- some extremes, will talk as if the resurrection has already taken place, as if our bodies should no longer be subject to weakness, pain and decay. That is not true now. 
Your body is subject to weakness, pain and decay. And it will die one day. But we can have tastes of glory that bring healing, that bring deliverance. And we want more of them. I don't want less of them. I want more. But we have to realise it's still the first fruits of the Spirit. It's not the full harvest. It's the now time, not the not yet time. Now, God has acted conclusively. Everything has been paid for at the cross. Your new body, my new body is already paid for. Jesus will not have to die again. In a sense, everything is in the uh, atonement. You know, sometimes people argue, is healing in the atonement? Well, it is. My new body's in the atonement. It's all in the atonement. And my father is a good father. But hear this. My heavenly father is also the God of history. My heavenly father is also the God of history. And he will assuredly complete his plan of salvation for the whole universe, but not yet. It could be this week, but it's not yet. And you have to understand this. God will not change his timetable because you don't enjoy waiting. Because you're like an impatient child in a car, God won't suddenly say, oh, let's not go on the two-hour journey. Let's turn back and have a McDonald's and a cuddly toy. No, we're going somewhere and it's going to take two hours. And we have to remember that tension, live with it. We do want to see healings and miracles, but the very need of them shows we're still in the suffering, not yet now time. Now, on the other hand, quickly, and I will have to finish with this, patient doesn't necessarily mean, which it has often in Christian circles, passive, fatalistic, unbelieving, miserable and pessimistic. Which it does. I'm being patient. No, there's a patience of joy and faith. Patient doesn't mean no faith, no expectation. We do have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the first instalment of the age to come. We're already new creations. We have the potential. Sin does not need to have dominion over you. You can walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can lay hands on the sick and they will recover. You can resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can, in Jesus' name, rebuke demons and drive them out of people. But there are still demons around. We, so we live with that tension, okay? We need to be on the front foot. We're people of the age to come. We live in the present with a taste of the future. I'm ending on this. Uh, is it Louis or L Luca? Luca, bless you. You can come up. Thank you. I'm sorry. I've rest ruined all the plans. It's not his fault. It's my fault. So, but yeah, he's got to come up. <laughs> Thank you, Luca. It was a tough, tough gig to be John Groves, wasn't it, for this one? Seriously, as we end, let's remind ourselves of that verse. We wait eagerly and we wait patiently. We are mature enough to live with the tension. We know that we are still in the now time of suffering. But we are not passive and fatalistic because we are people of the future time. We already have tasted of the age to come. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit in us. And as if I had time, I would go on to say, which I haven't time, don't worry, that the Holy Spirit is active to help us live in this time. That's what's in verses 26 and 27. That the Holy Spirit groans with us. And there's an old, it says he helps us. And there's an old, again, it's dear old Matthew Henry. He points out that the word helps is a word for practical help. And it, you could translate it heaves. 
The Holy Spirit heaves with us. Imagine you're trying to lift a heavy weight. You're trying to cope with the battles of this life, the battles of sin, the battles of sickness, the battles for revival. And the Holy Spirit says, I'm with you in it. And he groans with us. And it's like he heaves with us. So he's got his heavy, you can't lift it. He gets the other end of it. He goes, oh, I lift it up. The Holy Spirit heaves with us. We don't always know how to pray. We don't understand everything in the now time. We don't get it all. We don't see as we're going to be seen. But the Holy Spirit knows. He knows the heart of God. He is God. And He knows your heart. And He prays with us. He heaves with you. He brings your prayers to line up with God. Come on, let's go for it. Of course we pray. We pray for healing. We pray for revival. We pray for change in our world. We pray even for the practical things. I don't despise it. Pray that the world isn't ruined, blown up with nuclear weapons or poisoned or something. But we pray and the Holy Spirit who knows the full plan of God heaves with us. Isn't that beautiful? Come on, let's pray. I'll help you. And as we groan, as we say, God, what do I pray? The Holy Spirit will help you. Amen.